News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Katie Honan in Queens, and Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Hi, Harry. Hello, Harry and Katie. Hey, guys. So later in the show, you'll be hearing my interview with Assemblyman Ron Kim about a blockbuster new report from his office ripping into a progressive stalwart, the nonprofit Chinese American Planning Council, for what he calls rampant wage theft from home healthcare workers, many of them immigrant women working 24-hour shifts. But first, let's look back on a week with the deadliest fire in New York City since the Happy Land Club arson in 1990. His most recent fire, also in the Bronx, 17 dead, uh, including, it looks like, at least eight children. Uh, Most of the victims are immigrants from West Africa. And that tragedy has understandably overshadowed to some extent uh, some of the political news with Eric Adams appointing an unindicted co-conspirator in a major Bill de Blasio and NYPD corruption scandal, Philip Banks, as his deputy mayor for public safety. On the same day that it came out, he was aiming to appoint his brother, a retired NYPD sergeant, now working in parking administration for Virginia University as a deputy police commissioner before downgrading him into an apparently new executive director of mayoral security position, complete with the $210,000 salary. So we've got lots to talk about. Uh, But to start with, Katie, uh, can you fill listeners in on your scoop that went up at the city uh, on Tuesday evening about the secret sideline securing city real estate deals of Eric Adams' economic czar in waiting, Carlos Cesura, and what this may show about where the Adams administration, which, by the way, reportedly will not have a deputy mayor for housing, looks to be heading. Yeah, thanks. Um, So, yes, again, I will say, as of this recording, Carlos Cesura has not been officially announced as the head of the Economic Development Corporation, but The Real Deal reported it last week, and and also I had it independently confirmed from some people saying, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen likely by the end of this week. Um, so I guess background, I a source sent me a contract that I do not believe was meant for anyone's eyes other than Carlos Cesura and the real estate developer who he calls a friend, Tim Ziss, uh, who he signed it with. Um, I did receive it via priority mail on, I saw it on Christmas day. I was at my parents' house on Christmas Eve. And when I came back to my apartment on Christmas day, it was there. I thought maybe it was a love letter, but no, it's just a Contract and and I will also say after talking about it with my editors, we at first were like, you know, this is interesting, but, um, I, you know, I don't know. It, it, he works right now at a private organization. But when I woke up last week and I saw the real deal story, I joked that I shot up the, the real deal story that he was going to be the head of the EDC. I shot up out of my bed like the grandpa in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> like when he realized I was like, yes, now it's relevant. This is someone who is going to presumably be the president of the EDC, which is the city's nonprofit and envi- uh, economic development arm, which already as, as a journalist trying to cover them, there are some transparency issues. So basically the deal, Carlos Cesar, former head of the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce since 2017 has been at the New York Building Congress as its CEO, which is like a trade organization to encourage and, and, and support building trades. 
He signed a contract in October of 2018 with a developer named Tim Ziss. I will say these are both two Bay Ridge guys. If that there's that there's that maybe they met each other at I don't know the Century 21 or something. Um, but the contract explicitly says, and I believed it from my understanding of lobbying, and then I had obviously lobbying lawyers check it. The scope of work outlined is lobbying. So it's two things. One is help, and I'm doing a follow-up today. One is to help secure some kind of deal with HPD over Bridgeview 3, which is an apartment complex in Astoria. And the second scope of work involved five properties in Brooklyn and in Bay Ridge and Diker Heights, two of which were later sold to the city um, for schools. Uh, and, you know, it's meeting with elected officials, figuring things out. There was also a performance bonus of $100,000 if he got what they wanted out of HPD. That was in addition to the $6,000 a month uh, he received starting in October 2018 and a $15,000 retainer. Um, I don't know if he got the $100,000 bonus. I, Carlo, if you're listening, I called you. The first time I reached you, you said it wasn't you. Then when I called you back, he hung up on me. He did send me a statement, but you, you know, you got my number. I'll try you on another number, but I would love to know what happened there. His defense was this was outside my scope of the building Congress. I was helping a friend, but he's not a registered lobbyist. The work be- appears to be lobbying. It's unclear to me if the elected officials he spoke to knew he was getting paid by the developer and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it sets up some sort of pattern of here's someone who's politically connected, um, engaging in things that do not appear to be above board. And he's going to have a very high profile position in the Adams administration. So, you know, same thing with Phil Banks. I don't know, maybe Bernie Adams, he could be a great guy, but I think appointing your brother, um, I don't know. I, I joked I would appoint my sister as school's chancellor if I became mayor, but. Well, Banks is Banks's brother, of course. Uh, David Banks is right. the school's chancellor right now. It's, it, they're really keeping it in the literal family and the like proverbial Brooklyn politics family. So. I don't know. It, it, it's all fun. Um, just every day, it's it's fun and entertaining. So, Katie, you probably know the answer to this. So the EDC, the Economic Development Corporation, right? It's like a two billion with a B yeah. dollar a year enterprise. All that money comes from the city, mm-hmm. but nominally, it's like a separate nonprofit that like leverages city funds to create things that are good for economic development in New York. So. Given that 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 quasi public status, like are its records foyable? Yeah. Uh, is it is it accountable the same way? I mean, this is nothing newer that Adams created. I I, I just yeah. I've never dug in to fully understand that. Thought you might. Also, do they, Katie? If you know, do they also give? This is the same branch that gives grants to small business owners. Yeah, they did. De Blasio do- recently did, um, had narrowed the scope to, uh, you know favor women uh, and people of color in the last year, or he said he was going to. Yeah, they work on that. They also like dole out tax-free bonds for to, to kind of encourage that's through the IDA, which is also a sort of an affiliate of the EDC. Um, you know, they've given, I wrote about some tax-free bonds that Yankee stadium got that fresh Direct got this is through EDC. So the EDC was formed under the Giuliani administration. And yeah, I mean, the stuff is foilable just like anything else in the city is foilable. Are you going to get it in a timely manner? Like, are you going to get it? No. I mean, I have foils from two jobs ago that I still haven't received. So that is sort of where where that's at. And look, the EDC operates a New York City ferry. Um, they were heavily involved in the city's bid to get Amazon HQ2 here. 
Um, they, they, they oddly enough worked on the graffiti cleanup. They, they do things. I've been told from people who say, look, they can just do things a lot faster than other agencies. So maybe that's a, a, a positive when you're trying to get things done, but it, it always kind of has been a sort of, it's not, I mean, to say something is not as opaque as a city agency when you're starting with how, um, I'm sorry, not as transparent as a city agency when you're starting with already <laughs> opaque city agencies. Yeah. So there's that. And yeah, I mean, Carlo has not been officially appointed yet. I don't know. You know, someone asked me, oh, do you think this story will affect it? And I don't think so. I mean, as a reporter, I think I've come to terms with the fact that you could write a million times about something. And I think people are just going to do whatever they're going to do. Which brings us back to the Philip Banks, who yes. I was writing about <laughs> in the Daily News. You wrote about in in, in the city. There were all these unanswered questions. He, uh, you know, announces his own appointment in a Daily News op-ed that doesn't answer like any of those questions uh, yeah. for the most part, and sort of repeats his his previous narrow legalistic denials. What's interesting about those legalistic denials, which basically boil down to, I didn't break any NYPD rules, and I didn't break any laws. In my dealings with these guys, yeah. uh, is, is how much this is all based on this crazy Supreme Court decision, McDonald, and how, which is why De Blasio doesn't end up even getting charged. Well, the guys who bribe him are convicted of giving those bribes, as is Phil Banks's good friend Norman Seabrook, uh, for for burning nineteen million of his members' money while getting sixty thousand dollars, you know, in a hand delivered man purse. Yeah, Norman yeah. Seabrook, the head of the correctional officers yes. union. Mm -hmm. So but thank you. Th this is sort of remarkable that at this point, if you're smart enough not to do a direct government service for the people who are bribing you, the chances of you're going to prison, getting charged, uh um have basically disappeared. And de Blasio stumbled into this, in effect, because the, the, the laws were just changing and the courts hadn't fully interpreted what all this meant. But Adams is coming in, who's been very emphatic about how he's going to have a rule-following administration, brought in a former assistant U.S. attorney, who's by all accounts a very impressive guy, to sort of oversee their compliance. Yeah. But I have these questions about whether complying with the letter of the law is going to mean governing in, in, in the public interest. Uh, that I'm not I'm not answering or trying to speculate about at this point, but I, 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 Adams is a very smart political observer is aware that, that there is more and more give between those two things than had previously been the case. That if the people who are supporting you or putting money into your operation, you know, if, you, if you're not asking for a direct act in exchange, that, that there's no issue there, no matter how well this works out for everyone involved. And similarly with banks, sure, I flew around the world with these guys. Uh, but I, I never did anything for them. What's the issue? Yeah. And, and I think it also speaks to the personality of Eric Adams. He's a very loyal person. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I guess you can say that about every politician because you have to get a lot of favors to get to higher office. Um, but it just seems that this is his crew. He, he praised Phil Banks um, repeatedly. Uh, and, you know, there are people who did think as a police officer, you know, before the corruption, he was a very skilled politician. Uh, police officer and especially in understanding different crime prevention and, and things like that. Um, I can't speak to Bernie Adams as um, I know now he's going to be the, his head of security. Uh, but uh, yeah. And David Banks also skilled in, in what he does, depending on who you sp speak to. And yeah, I mean, you could argue that I guess Carlos Cesar understands economic development. <laughs> he found a way to get paid to help his friend, you know, that's, that's advancing the economic cause.
Oh, just quickly, can you draw draw a quick map for me uh, verbally? <laughs> uh, of, <laughs> so so far, Eric Adams in this loyalty has appointed. Like, who are we looking at in this in this tree? Philip Banks as deputy mayor for public safety. Deputy mayor for public safety. David Banks, schools chancellor. Schools chancellor. His brother, yeah, his brother Bernie. Initially, I guess he had told the Post initially he would be a deputy commissioner of the police department, but now it's he took a bit of a. I think it went from two hundred forty thousand to two hundred ten thousand dollar job as head of the Eric Adams security. And I will note, Eric Adams has been very open about how he will not have the same type of security that Bill De Blasio has. We saw it on New Year's Day. Uh, New Year, yeah, New Year's Day. Uh, I did not ride the train with him, but you know he rode the J train without security, witnessed a fight. Um, he seems to, he certainly walks the streets of New York a lot differently than Bill de Blasio had, at least in the later, you know, towards the end of Bill de Blasio's tenure, it was, I would joke with his detail cops because they would be spaced out. You know, you couldn't sometimes leave city hall if the mayor was coming in. It's like, come on, what do you think I'm going to do? Like push him. So (laughs) shove him down this. No, I didn't. Like, what do they think I'm going to do? Um, if he made us wait in that press room during COVID in close <laughs> quarters for over an hour when he was late one more time, Katie Hona would have. I would have. I would have shoved him down. No, I wouldn't have. That's a threat. I would not have done that. He's very informative. Difference just to have yeah. a, a mayor who's out and about the city and without a visible police presence. I mean, the other interesting thing about bringing his brother in. Uh, so, so, so John Miller, who's sort of been in charge of counterintelligence, had, had overseen the mayor's detail until now, and you get a sense of Adam's suspicions about the NYPD going back to his time on the NYPD in the idea of of, of bringing his uh, his brother in to do this. And of course, De Blasio got into all sorts of issues with his security detail and that he was using them, according to his own IG, as a concierge service for his family and yeah. like their moves and airport pickups. And things like that. Uh, very quickly, back to Philip Banks. I did talk to one person who served in the NYPD with him, and both the, the Adams administration and Banks have not responded to me at all. Um, <laughs> but but I, I ended up speaking with someone who, who worked with him and, and, and thought he'd, he'd really screwed up and uh, paid a real price for that, but said, I'm really glad he's back and saw this whole thing as a tragedy that was bad for Banks and bad for the city and said he was hugely impressive when he was running Comstat uh, yeah. along with Dermot Shea. That he and that he understood that the, the the ways in which this could just become a numbers obsession and resisted that and was determined to use it as a tool for creating a more responsive and actually community oriented NYPD, and uh, was just very excited to to see him back. So I, I really hope that's uh, the sort of vision we get in this new role. He also left just after Eric Garner's killing. Um, and consequently was was sort of separated from the political fallout from that. Uh, and didn't end up having to uh, testify at this inquest that just happened at the family's request. And, and you know, from his high up position, it said we need more enforcement in Staten Island, which in some ways got the ball rolling on the whole chain of events that led to Garner's killing. Although I yeah. think ha- having a high up NYPD official say, you know, we need more enforcement and connecting that with the end result of one act of enforcement would be uh, unfair I was surprised not to see it get into the coverage mix at all as his name floated around for uh, months. And then despite all this reporting uh, and pressure on Adams not to do so, he, he was, in fact, appointed. That is loyalty. Yeah, it's um, 
I mean, I was thinking of the image. It was a daily news story of the guys who fired or what the guys of the PD who were still there and who disciplined Phil Banks, how he got to come back in and then get rid of them. It's like a before movie. He was, before he was announced. Before he was yeah. announced. It's, it really is. It's, it's Godfather. It's incredible. Yeah. And that's so played out. I, I say that every day. I'm like, if it was a TV show, you'd say, I don't believe this. But that's the way it's sort of been playing out as. And and I think, you know, obviously we as journalists, we have to keep our eyes on everything and and and, and just, but at least it's entertaining for now. No, no question about that. Um, moving away from entertainment for a minute. Yeah. Uh, Alex, you were you were keeping an eye on on, on what Tish James said today in in response to the uh, fire and some of the fundraising that's been out there. Well, what's been going on? Uh, yeah, there's I mean not too much to fill in. Just that Tish James is warning that there are a bunch of like fake GoFundmes and people soliciting donations for um, the residents of the building in the Bronx where uh, the fire was. Um, and 17 people, I, I think it's 17 confirmed dead now. Many of yeah. them are children. Yeah. Um, there's an unconfirmed number of children. But, you know, it reminds me, uh, like, it, it's the oldest hustle in the book. You know, it, there's a tragedy and it's pretty uh, it's pretty typical if a lot of people want to help. And you can make a call out for some funds to get residents who don't have a home, like everything from sanitary pads to blankets to tube socks. And, um, you know, so she's just basically warning about that. Yeah. And I think it, it, it can be difficult for people. We've seen this at during a lot of, whether they're it's tragedies here in New York city or elsewhere or nationally or abroad, People do want to help, but you know, it's sort of, it's always unfortunate. You see these grifts. people, you could set up, there's really no, you could set up a GoFundMe and there's really not much that they can do to claw money back once it's donated. Um, so yeah, be mindful. I know that there are a few recommended. This, the mayor's fund is raising money. There are other GoFundMes that have been verified and recommended to give. Also, and- it's probably a good marker if they're asking you to come drop stuff off at a specific right. location. Like, hey, please come drop off fresh packages of tube socks or, you know, feminine products you can donate. Yeah. And then even just money for, especially given that so many of the the people who died are, are immigrants and people want to be buried back home where they were born. So there are, I know fundraisers for that. Um, but yeah, there are, I would recommend if people do want to give, I've tried to give to verified um, donation sites, but it's just uh, a, a truly awful uh situation there and also a good reminder um of when this has happened before when it happened previously in the bronx uh, a few years ago and it was the door that did not close there was legislation for doors to close automatically and and um i know there was the issue in that building where the door did not close so you know it's a lot we saw eric yeah we saw eric adams respond i mean he said you know everyone has to remember to close the door uh he also you know, talked a lot about his personal PTSD uh, mm-hmm. being um, on the force, being at the NYPD as, you know, also, you know, thanking firefighters uh, who were running into that building. Um, yeah. One other thing I wanted to bring up today is that uh, about more than 400 students staged a walkout mm. over safety concerns in schools on Tuesday of this week. And I found that interesting. There's been a lot of chatter among teachers. One teacher in particular I know 
said on the one hand, there are no safety, uh, there, are, there are not a lot of you know safety protocols being followed. But on the other hand, there's a lot less kids in school, so that it's easier to space them out. Yeah. And that walkout was at Brooklyn Tech, which is one of the premier high schools, uh, public high schools in the city. And um, uh, you've, I've heard from students and parents and teachers who just say it is not safe. You have kids crowded in auditoriums because of staffing issues. Um, it was all the special. It was a Stuyvesant, Brooklyn Tech and Bronx Science. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was so, overpacked, um, but but there are 5,000 students. Brooklyn Tech is always overpacked, if yes. Brooklyn Tech alone. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it, it's interesting to see some of these pressures build. Uh, and at the same time, it looks like this wave of the virus, at least, may be uh, peaking. And both uh, uh, the mayor and the new chancellor and the governor have been emphatic about uh, trying, trying to keep schools open. And functionally doing that in the absence of decent testing, uh, real mass, uh, not, not just sort of the paper ones you're putting over your face or anything else. And, and I, I think students getting sort of woken up and aware of that is, is, a, is a healthy development, but uh, these are not easy choices. And it's, it, again, it's just, it's a very large system. It's a also, lot smaller Hochul, than it used to be. We're talking about 900,000 students. Yeah. yeah. Hochul just shut down uh, contact tracing too, because it's not, it, it's almost impossible with something spreading as wide as Omicron. I, and I will say that had the contact tracing had been an issue since the start of COVID here in the city. Um, I reported a story a few months ago about the health department. And, you know, there was that tension between the health department and the mayor and people, the health department said, look, contact tracing when it's so widespread like this, yeah. it's pointless to put all the, the time and energy and money into contact tracing. Right. Who, who were you exposed to? 50 people. Right. But those 50 people could have been exposed to. So there were other ways that they felt could do a better job to slow the spread and mitigate COVID. But um, there was so much effort and energy put into contact tracing. I unfortunately don't know. I can't speak to either whether which one is beneficial, but I think it makes sense. I know Mary Seems like for the focus on testing and, you know, yeah. and mask wearing. And also um, one other thing I just wanted to mention is like the IRAP business. So IRAP had to basically the rent assistance program mm -hmm. had to be re opened because of a lawsuit um, from legal aid to the state when they closed it. The program is currently completely not funded. However, yeah. they have reopened it because if you are facing eviction and the eviction moratorium is about to run out in like the 15th, I believe. So one, two days, Saturday. if you are facing Saturday, if you're facing eviction and you put in an application for the rental assistance program, your case is somewhat in limbo, right? You can't be evicted as long as you have an application in that it's showing that the application is in. And uh, so that's kind of, it seems like that's the best solution, not the best solution, but that is all, that's one of the only measures that people who are facing eviction have. Yeah. The legislature is pushing, people on the left in the legislature are pushing this fair clause act um, that, that, Landlords argue would essentially be a form of rent stabilization for most tenants where, where everyone could stay everywhere indefinitely and the rent couldn't go up by more than 3%. I think that's unlikely to pass this year, but it's one of the interesting issues Albany is going to be uh, looking at. Um, with that, I think we should jump into this Ron Kim interview as he's trying to, uh, to, to make an issue of the 24-hour uh, work rule 
and how home care operates in New York that a lot of other lawmakers on the left aren't interested in digging into, in part because in practice, if uh, these workers all got back pay or if the system changed really dramatically and quickly going forward, it's not clear that the economics of uh, home care would continue to work, which maybe says something about how little we've been paying people for this absolutely essential work for all the New Yorkers and at the end of their lives and as the city is aging. But with all that, let's jump right in. It's FAQ NYC. Uh, I'm Harry Siegel uh, here again with uh, Assembly Member Ron Kim. Uh, Ron, thank you for uh, joining the pod. Yeah, thank you for having me back on, Harry. It's, it's a pleasure. And uh, we have a lot to talk about right here. Uh, there was a report, I believe it was a, a joint production of the American Prospect and New York Focus by Daniel Mortiz Rapson that I read titled Ron Kim targets a progressive heavyweight and allegations of wage theft. Kim accuses the Chinese American planning council of rampant wage theft and in coordination with 1199 SEIU of blocking workers access to the courts. Uh, that story was about a, a report that your office put out called uh, the nonprofit war on workers. Um, and it's an analysis of, of the Chinese American planning council's legal tactics with 1199 to exploit workers. A lot of this revolves around these 24 hour, uh, these 24 hour shifts that workers are expected to do to have certain time off in to get paid some overtime for, and the space between the uh, the nominal rules and, and the actual practices seems to be incredibly large and with help from progressive allies, uh, or people are generally considered progressive allies, groups that are like the Planning Council and 1199. So for uh, listeners who have not read the uh, article or the report yet, I'm hoping you can take them through broadly uh, what it reports, uh, how your office came to give it this look, and what's happening now uh, in, in the aftermath of its release. Yeah, so in my district, there's a group called the Flushing Workers Center that have been helping directly um, the hundreds of workers that have been impacted by the 24-hour shift and the bad wages that providers like CPC have not addressed. Um, and when I met with them back in April, including um, CPC's directors and their core team, uh, obviously, we've had a ton of questions, and I have a long history of working with groups like CPC. Um, and when they sat down and we were looking at some of the legal tactics and what they've been arguing in the courts, they had a very hands-off answer. They're like, well, that's separate. We don't get involved with what's going on in the lawsuit. We don't know what's going on with their lawyers. And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of problematic. So we need to go back and look at what's going on because what you're telling me in my office may not necessarily line up with what your lawyers are arguing on, on your organization's behalf in the courts. So David Lee, my legislative director, uh, started reviewing thousands and thousands. We're talking about like three, four thousands of legal documents over the course of seven months and did a comprehensive uh, analysis of what the seven years of litigation tells and uh, uh, how they've been suppressing workers' rights and trying to bypass the state laws that we have in place to protect these workers, seeking federal exemptions in the courtrooms, which would codify, in, in, in a sense, the 24-hour rule. Because even if we 
banned 24 hours if they're constantly seeking you know, you know to bypass the state laws it's very disingenuous for them to come out and say oh we want to end 24 hours we're progressive we're doing this but your private attorneys are litigating and and arguing for a different path and that's what the report tells it's a tale of two different paths and stories um, about an organization that is holding hands with us in front of the public to make it seem like they want to end the toxic and abusive practice and they were there in line with us but what they're doing in the courtroom tells a whole entirely different story. And so there's a bit of a shell game element as the report describes it, where, where you have a, uh, you have state laws, you have uh, the federal laws, and then you have a binding arbitration system that workers are committed to that, that, that many of the workers involved in these suits. And I'm going to come right back to those workers uh, said they were not aware of. Uh, but but effectively shunts things out of the the court system, in any of those court systems in in the first place. So you have a group that says it's dedicated to ending this rule, uh, but then is almost constantly or constantly over years now find find finding venues to allow this to continue. And in fact, part of their response to the report was, if we were to just stop this right now and work out back pay, uh, we would go bankrupt. Which seems to indicate what's wrong with the system. But can we talk for a minute just about? These workers, these two class action suits, and just the sort of workers we're talking about, like what, what, what they're doing day to day, what their days are like, and what they're getting paid for that. Yeah, the two, the two um, cases, Mrs. Chu and Mrs. Chen, that we've been working directly with and highlighted in this report, um, have been working 24-hour shifts for almost 10 years. And um, they've worked for CPC, and they realized one day when they received some sort of a uh, overtime payment for $250. They're like, What's, what is this? I've been working for 24 hours and you're trying to give me $250 for years of overtime work. Um, and they started to ask questions and uh, talking to attorneys and organizers and they pushed back and they started suing uh, CPC, um, cl- trying to claim their uh, back wages going back many years. Um, these are uh, home care workers that have given the majority of their um, very good adult life to help others, uh, care for others. And now they're aging out themselves with severe health issues because as you can imagine, Harry, when you are when you work um, in those kind of conditions, um, your personal health is impacted. And this and, and I know this very personally because you know my mom um, you know had worked uh, many hours on her feet. Um, and she passed away um, this October um, of breakthrough COVID. And it was only after that she passed, I was able to go through her work records, working for 16 years um, at, a, at, a, at a supermarket on her feet as an immigrant cook. Um, and she um, hid a lot of these abuses away, uh, away from me. And I've, I try to intervene over the years, try to call out the company that she worked at um, H Mart, which is a supermarket. And she always told me, you know, just back off. I'm proud of the work that I'm doing. Um, I, I'm actually, I feel productive. I don't want you to say anything. And it was only afterwards, after she passed, when, I, when my dad and I were reviewing um, the number of hours that she worked and the, the cash economy that she was involved with um, and the lack of accountability, 
that how abusive these entities are to immigrant women workers because they know the mindset these women have and they're willing to um, just roll up the sleeve and not fight and not complain uh, because they fear that they'll lose their job. And there are many organizations and companies that take advantage of workers like that in my community. People, most people fall in the category of people like my mom, um, who do not want to say anything, which is who are very fearful of losing their positions. Um, but these women who stepped up, they had enough. Like they want to liberate themselves, and and whether they have uh, some sort of economic compensation, they want to live the rest of their lives feeling like they took a stance and they push back and they're fighting to liberate themselves economically. Uh, and that's why we're deeply involved in trying to help them. And with these workers, you get into a whole tangle of, of, of state and national regulations that, that this report, I think, is an attempt to, to cut through that Gordonian nod and, and point to the fundamental problem. But uh, I believe the, the, the CPC says that, that these are living domestic service employees who there's an exemption from some labor laws because they're either living at the uh, consumer's house full time or spending at least uh, 120 hours there per week. Um, so in the course of this, there's 12-hour shifts, but those 12-hour shifts can double. They're supposed to be five hours at least for uninterrupted sleep, three hours for eating. Uh, and, and all of that is, despite all, all of these codes and laws, seems, seems to be much more hypothetical than, than, than practical, which I don't think the, uh, the planning council or other groups that provide these services, and the planning council is a nonprofit that then ha has uh, an arm. That, that, that is doing this and contracting with these mostly women who aren't getting paid all that much uh, for the, this arduous work. How, how do we end up with the system where that, 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 that's legal as a starting point? And why has that been so difficult to change? The planning council says they want to change it. You say you want to change it. Um, and yet, yet here we are in New York. And, and this as, by the way, we have an aging population. And it's likely that we're going to have tens of thousands more such workers going forward for that reason. Yeah, it's the CPC um, will continue to try to confuse the issue and put out circuitous arguments. Um, but our role is to simplify what's happened and uh, hold CPC accountable because the highest court said, you know, wages are responsible from the employer. Uh, CPC is 100% liable. Um, yes. The entire ecosystem of home care is broken. There is no denying that. Um, 10 years ago, we went from a county-driven fee-to-service model to use managed care systems, what we call MLTCs, that are under Como, really, in, in honesty, they were, they were put in to use words like cost-effectiveness to cut corners and save Medicaid a lot of money. Um, and so they're fueling a very bad environment and, and awarding bad behavior by providers. Having said that, many nonprofits, even for-profits, who work with these MLTCs will look at the contract and determine their accounting and say, we can't make this work, so we can't accept this contract because we can't pay our workers. Or they take a bad contract and they raise money separately um, through their grants or nonprofit status to make the workers whole. Groups like CPC 
their $300 million nonprofit at the peak of their growth were so focused on scaling their organization, they just took on any bad contracts over the years. And they just try to make it work by fudging the numbers, not keeping proper accounting, and threatening workers to not report on their wages because they don't want to get in trouble. Um, so they, out of a very terrible system, they also acted uh, very badly. And for that, CPC needs to be held accountable um, while we fix the larger problem of, of a broken um, pipeline that uses for-profit intermediaries that's designed to extract profits to give out contracts to home care providers and nursing homes, et cetera. Shifting from the, uh, the left to the right for just a moment, you know, New York has a uh, massive Medicaid program to start with. Um, right now, I think it's projected it's going to be 7.6 million of the just under 20 million people in the state are going to be part of it uh, as of as of this year. Uh, the total cost is something like 82 and a half billion dollars split between the feds, uh, the state and localities in New York. Um, I, I'm wondering if, if having a program that large uh, creates opportunities for this sort of uh, for this sort of gaming, nonprofits and other groups, uh, you know, op- operating under a nominal seal of, of of being for the public good, to uh, to to do all sorts of the mischief in a program where you know tens of millions of dollars is basically a rounding error. Right. And, and that's one of the things that we address with the new commissioner and uh, Department of Health uh, to dive into this accounting, public accounting questions. And there is absolutely no track of uh, where the money is flowing from uh, the moment we leaves Medicaid. Uh, the first company that goes to is a, a for-profit that screens uh, people. And then from there, it goes to an intermediary. And then from there, it goes to a provider. And by the time it gets to the end user, we're getting 30, 40 cents on the dollar for the original dollar that we've allocated. Um, so you're, you're correct in the sense, even if you keep throwing money into the system, these operators and intermediaries that are in between uh, are designed to extract as much money out of the system. Um, so unless we address that core structure that uh, Andrew Como in his tenure has empowered, um, and also Department of Health that is allowing private capital uh, to influence um, the long-term care uh, facilities. Uh, for example, under Como's Department of Health, we sold off uh, so many uh, uh, county-run, publicly-run uh, nursing home long-term facilities to for-profits in upstate New York uh, without even a question, without even an oversight of the impact of those type of decisions. Um, these are the type of, I think, public good, public capital, what I, recall, what I call public capital um, uh, initiatives and, and regain of public capital um, that we need to really uh, push forward to have, be in a better position where we can we know that every public benefit dollar is being is held accountable and it's going through a population that is going to double and triple in the next 20 years. The report mentions the uh, the analysis that your office did of uh, Governor Cuomo's work with the uh, Greater New York Hospital Association 
uh, to create a, a corporate immunity clause. Uh, I was hoping you could talk about that for a minute, how it ties in with, with, with this report and your role as a chair as the, of the uh, Committee for the Aging in New York. Right. Uh, so at the peak of the pandemic, um, Cuomo quietly put in uh, a near blanket, uh, get out of jail free card uh, called corporate legal immunity for hospitals and nursing homes that the industry leaders, along with the approval of labor groups and other people behind them, like Level 99, um, into the budget last minute. Um, their, uh, their PR and the way that they used uh, lawmakers, stakeholders to um, present the different story behind legal immunity um, and cover it up, uh, the tactics that they're using and the power position that they've been, that they're in uh, to do the bidding of the uh, for profits and the, the the special interest groups behind hospitals and nursing homes um, are similar in, in dynamic of where CPC is in groups like CPC, a, a mega nonprofit that has um, tremendous power position in the market as well as politics. Uh, to do uh, bad things privately uh, while using uh, their relationships and political ties to give the public a different type of uh, impression of what they're doing um, around this issue. And it, it, public policy is, that's why I think it's very difficult to decipher sometimes, because it's not just legislating. You know, we need to look at um, uh, the implications of the courts. We need to look at the dynamics of how uh, organizations sometimes use and co-op uh, progressive uh, lawmakers and progressive so-called brands to uh, cover up uh, some of these toxic uh, laws and, and policies. And it's our job to be honest and truthful and be loyal to the public. And sometimes what this particular fight is illustrating is that it is sometimes it is difficult to be loyal to the public and be a true public servant when you, when you have to pick between uh, your allies, friends, and personal friends over the public. And I think that's the moment where uh, many, I think, lawmakers often, uh, I would not fail, but just don't meet the moment uh, because it's easier to not say anything and it's easier to not read the facts or the report and just look at the other direction, like legal immunity. It, it would have been easier not to say anything because, you know, uh, some of the most powerful groups that we are usually in line with have already signed off on it. They knew about it, you know, and, and, and for you to put a, your neck out and call everyone out and make everyone feel uncomfortable, it may not benefit you politically. Uh, it may hurt certain friendships inside uh, the labor groups that already they knew about it. They don't want to be called out on the fact that they cut a very bad deal with management. And that's also another big theme around legal immunity and, um, and, and, and wage theft um, and mandatory, mandatory arbitration, which is what Level 99 agreed to, uh, which fundamentally suppresses workers. Right and, and their ability to seek recourse in the courts. Um, so there's a history of groups like Level 99 to again scale 
and grow in political size that they would cut bad deals with management uh, to get as many members signed up to, to their union uh, without actually uh, fighting for um, the policies that protects the workers. And, and I think uh, unless we're honest and have uncomfortable conversations, uh, it's groups like my communities, immigrant workers that unknowingly signed up to be part of the union, but they didn't know that they, they signed off on a mandatory arbitration agreement um, for, with 1199. And so how are we supposed to prevent these type of uh, occurrences from happening again if we do not uh, confront them now? So the uh, Chinese American Planning Council put out a list of, uh, they, they did not respond, I thought, to the, uh, to the meat of the report, but they put out a list of questions they said you should be asked. So, so I'm going to ask you uh, two of them. I think they had 11. And um, interested in your response. The, the very first question is, why did he, you, release a report without fact-checking with us or reaching out to discuss these issues? And then later on, they ask, uh, why does he, you, as someone who has an oversight role over the state Medicaid program, assume that a 100% Medicaid-funded organization like CPCHAP um, can settle back wages in the same way that for-profit agencies, which have not followed compensation rules and which have their own revenue streams, can? Right. First question. Um we are meeting with uh, CPC, uh, and that's just that's just a non-starter. That's just the deflection question, um, and we are going to do to brief them on our report. Uh, but we, but we don't have any obligation to uh, share our findings um, to a group that we are trying to check and oversee. But we are being very diplomatic um, and and trying to meet with them um, at, to go over our findings. Um, and the second question, uh, yeah, uh, the, it's simple. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're nonprofit or for profit. If you're an employer, um, the Court of Appeals, the highest court of New York State, has said you're responsible for wages. It's not the state. It's not the intermediaries. You cut the bad contract. And you agreed to those terms, knowing that you couldn't make the workers whole. So you're you're responsible uh, for this back wages, um, and. I would argue that nonprofits, unlike the for-profits, um, if you do uh, accept those bad contracts and you need to raise money, are in a better position to do so because you have a 501c3 status to raise money to make the workers whole. Uh, for-profit uh, organizations that are singularly focused on home care um, do not have the, the tax exemption ability to raise as much money to settle uh, with those workers, but they figure out a way to do so uh, because when you're not laterally integrated, like CPC, which is, in my opinion, a mega nonprofit that does uh, home care, adult literacy, child care, but they're a monopsony in the community where they, any, any kind of workers that want to enter the space, uh, CPC dominates. And Organizations like, organizations like that are using their status of tremendous dominating position to suppress workers instead of figuring out how to raise money to settle workers' wages. When other groups, for-profit, nonprofits that are singularly focused on just home care can't afford to disrupt their workforce because their entire model depends on that 
mission. So they're out there settling back wages because they want to make them whole because their entire organization depends on home care services. So what I'm saying is when you when your entire nonprofit relies on different type of revenues and different streams and you're you have real estate, you have buildings and you have a number of things that can make you stable, um, they are using that power to fight workers and using some of the most uh, uh, cor- biggest corporate lawyers that usually defense big oil companies uh, that cost a lot of money to suppress workers' rights instead of using their ability to borrow uh, against their buildings and against their assets to settle the workers' wages. That's why it's even worse what CPC is doing because they're using their monopolistic influence to actually create a different path to bypass state regulations and laws, not for just CPC, but for the entire home care workforce, which which is about eight ninety, which could impact about eighty to hundred thousand workers in New York. So, t- taking a small step back, their their implicit argument, as I see it, I'm not trying to put words in anyone else's mouth, is that the numbers just don't work. They don't work with back pay, but they also don't work going forward. And look, we're talking about really arduous, hands-on work here. With, with people who are on their feet, we're taking care of older people. You know, one of the plaintiffs is describing, you know, living in a home with someone, having to turn them over every 90 minutes because of an injury they had and getting injured themselves in the course of that. It's exhausting. It's demanding. There often isn't regular sleep with, with older people who are, who are ill and need to be attended to as things happen. Um, and that fundamentally, the, the, the dollars don't add up. Uh, and, and, and so they're saying if you try to make the, the dollars add up going backward in time, they would collapse. Uh, you've talked about that already. But, but I'm just curious how going forward, we would get to some sort of more equitable solution and with an aging population. So, so ending the 24-hour shift, which there's a bill to do, would, would maybe be one part of that. But if you're not talking about more pay to attract more workers and more decent benefits, I'm not clear how you get there. And the cost of that is very high and, again, is rising as, as the population ages. I was hoping you could speak to that for a minute and, and, and just, just this absolutely essential work, right, which has been a big phrase over the last couple of years that, 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 that gets paid very badly. Yeah, I, I agree with the call for fair wages for home care. Um, that's a, a, a perspective a solution. There's number, a couple of bills that would fix the pipeline to set the better rates. So you, you throw the money. If we add the money uh, for better wages, we need to also make sure that these uh, intermediate managed care and MLTCs are setting the right rates uh, to so it goes to the wages. Um, so I, I 100% believe perspectively we need to fix that. Um, people in upstate New York, um, they're choosing to go work at a retail store that are paying way above more minimum wage versus home care that's paying barely minimum wage. It makes no sense that we're pay- we are not paying livable wages um, and competitive wages for people that are supposed to take care of our loved ones. Um, so that, that needs to be worked out progress- uh, prospectively. But for the last 10 years, uh, we can't forget and raise the fact that we've underwritten the care sector and the ecosystem of care under the backs of 
um, these mostly immigrant woman workers that have not um, been um, properly taken care of. Uh, that because we we know what happened, we know how we got here, um, and there's ways and mechanisms to make them whole. And if we do not fight for them, the entire care ecosystem is built on fundamentally uh, on a broken and a racist um, uh, system. So that's why I think the foundation needs to be set correctly. It also impacts our ability to recruit and hire future workers. Um, why would any new worker look at the industry that had exploited uh, these immigrant women workers for the last 10 years and feel enticed uh, to work in the home care sector? Um, by making them whole and selling the back wages, we're signaling to future home care attendees and workers that no, we are seeking justice for all workers, and this is an industry that we will continue to respect uh, moving forward. So the report, which has, I should mention, like a, a, a significant and explicit uh, uh, Marxist overlay and sort of critique of the Weigel system, um, the economic system in New York, and, and how this is going more generally, it ends with a... Uh, uh, I, I'm not a Marxist, but I, I thought reading it that, that you could see how starting with that perspective was penetrating and, and got to some pressing issues that did need to be publicly addressed uh, that, that, that might not have been reached otherwise, that people could find ways and with political allies to look past. Um, but it, end, it ends with a, a series of, of recommendations for actions. Um, immediate ending of the 24-hour shift, remuneration of these unpaid wages, a public apology uh, to these injured workers, um, and then past that, public disclosure of, of all sorts of documents involving the Chinese American Planning Council and its home attendant program, public disclosure of granular and complete accounting records for over 200 million, speaking of rounding errors, and Medicaid reimbursements that, that they collect on an annual basis, um, referrals for uh, possible uh, 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 civil or criminal charges, um, and then this bill to abolish the uh, the the twenty four hour um, uh, shifts immediately, and a moratorium on discretionary funds uh, for the Chinese American Planning Council until it's resolved uh, the the aforementioned demands. So I'm hoping you you can go over how politically practical all of that is, and what distinguishes that last thing from a bill of attainder. Sure, um, <clears throat> we can't hide behind. Um, nonprofit um, stability, and there's a tendency to not criticize anything that has the word nonprofit in front of it. Um, and you, that leaves a wide lane for exploitative behavior. Um, and we, our job is to hold all organizations, entities accountable. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I'm going back to your kind of uh, Marxist comment. I mean, I don't think it's like a Marxist. I think it's just, I think it's factual. What David did was go throughout the history of where nonprofits came from, where, uh, you know, how it's been empowered to, to the current status of how we use nonprofits as quasi-government agencies. And these are no longer mission-driven organizations. Um, and I mean, he says, he says these are weapons of labor abuse. Right. Um, as he goes through, I mean, he, he's pretty explicit about it. The worldview on which this report rests is that the law functions as one of the most cunning weapons of capital uh, sure. and, and, and so on. Just just 
pardon, yeah. not to interrupt, but yeah, and and I, and I think I think there's been books like you know decoding capital by a Columbia law professor, um, you know that speaks to how private capital for the last forty plus years have been um, legislated and and protected in our private course in the court court system, and that's what I think David is pointing to that it's bypassing the legislature um that that it, it, we're living under what he what david refers to as a rule of capital and not a rule of law anymore and unless we understand the, the layers that are protecting this which is the nonprofit sector that have been empowered uh to co-opt um, a lot of our progressive messages while perpetuating uh anti-worker tactics in private courts uh, we we will we're conditioning ourselves and normalizing a different way of suppressing workers, and, and that's what this report, um, in my opinion, is about. That we need to have thorough and honest accountability of the nonprofits that are doing the bidding of traditionally private capital anti-worker measures, um, and understand that the public dollars are not being held accountable. The public. Uh, we need a thorough public accounting, and that may require us to have a, a long-term conversation beyond beyond the short-term recommendations. But how to build public capital in, for locals and localities and states? Because um, right now, there we don't we no longer live in a mixed economy. This is a hundred fifty percent private private capital that has infiltrated every aspect of public goods. Uh, unless we understand that, unless we figure out a path to regain our status, you know, status the public good, um, things are only going to get worse. That seems like a uh, terrific closing note to me, uh, to, to, to a conversation, obviously, that, that could go on and on. Uh, Assemblymember, thank you again for uh, taking the time and uh, rejoining the, the pod. Um, I'm very interested to see both both with these short-term recommendations, where things go and how much political will there is for that, uh, you know, in a, a state in which Democrats now dominate and uh, more longer term, what uh, what solutions you and others are proposing that, that match up to the scope of the problem you're describing. And, and, you know, with the actually relatively limited tools that the New York state legislature has to deal with the, uh, uh, the nature of the, uh, American economy and, uh, and, and broader political system. Um, anything you'd like to, uh, to, to weave listeners list with, or that, uh, they, they might want to look at or think about, uh, if they've stayed, stayed with this conversation. Yeah. Uh, we are, Harry, you're, you're hundred percent right. We're at a full crisis moment with long-term care. Um, lawmaker after lawmaker have came to the table to try to find solutions and they literally left the room time after time because it is such a complex and, and, and complicated problem, and no one knows how to fix it. So all we're doing is legislating around the edges and putting small band-aids and giving the public impression that we do, that it's a workable future, but it's not. We're not prepared for the quadrupling of the 65 plus overpopulation in the next 30 to 40 years. Um, we can't even handle the, the, the demand now and it's going to only you know, triple, quadruple in the next few years. Um, so unless we come together and have a reckoning of a broken system and, and understand 
um, that it is we can fix it. There's plenty of revenue. We have we're living in the wealthiest state in the entire entire uh, nation, and New York can lead the way in modeling this out uh, for long term care, and the rest of the country can follow. And as long as we have the political courage and will to do that, we can get there. And under I mean, Governor Hochul, I feel optimistic because she is uh, raising Medicaid dollars to um, uh, to allocate beyond what's been allowed for the last many decades. And she heard, and under a new commissioner, uh, they're open to different accountability of Medicaid uh, moving forward as well. Um, so I look forward to the next couple of months uh, trying to figure out solutions with this new, with this new administration. So member Kim, thank you. Thank you again. And uh, it's always good talking with you. Appreciate it. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Rocket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Creatives. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're hosted at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and recorded from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens and the city of Albany. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this week's episode. A special thank you to our guest, Assemblymember Ron Kim, Please be safe, be kind, be cool, wear a mask, get your shots, and we'll see you next week.